Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6, the sixth chapter of John, and we will continue our study through this monumental chapter. And while you turn there, I will remind you that in chapter 5, the pattern of Jesus working a sign and then having a discourse, speaking about it, unpacking its significance, resulted in the um, hostility and nay, the, the attempt to murder and kill Jesus. So Jesus went from mild curiosity, Nicodemus coming to ask questions. In John chapter 5, they, they, they persecute him, and then when they understand his claim to deity, they were trying to kill him. So the conflict escalates with the religious leaders, the Jews in Jerusalem. In John chapter 6, among other things, we see why the large, large crowds that would seek out Jesus might turn on him, might abandon him, might one day cry out, kill him, crucify. There are other things here, but that's one of the things we see. And so the pattern of a sign, the feeding of the 5,000, is followed by a discourse about the bread of life. In between that sign and that discourse is the transition. We looked at that last week. The disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, in his own way, crossing the Sea of Galilee and the crowds following the next day. So we're to move slowly through this because this is rich material. If you want to look at the entire discourse, you could break it maybe into three sections in uh, verses starting in maybe 22 or 25 or if you want to. Through verse 40, we get the first half. And the reason you can make a division there is that in 41, we get a somewhat summary. How, how did the crowd respond to what Jesus is saying? The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They didn't, they didn't like the first half of what he had to say. He was not done. He has more to say. And then from 41 through 59, we get the completion of the message. And then we get the consequence. Verse 60, many of his disciples heard this, said this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So broad sense, from 25 to 40, we get the first half of the Bread of Life discourse. We get some initial response. They don't like it. They grumble. We get the second half, and then we get the, the full consequence. They leave. They go home. They forsake him. So we're going to begin that first discourse here, focusing on food that endures and the work God requires. So if you're in John chapter 6, I'd invite you to read with me verses 25 to 30. Verses 25 to 30. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Lord God, I pray that as we look at these verses, we might um, see the glory of your Son, 
that we might set our sights above earthly things, that we might pursue, desire, work for the food that endures, that the Lord Jesus will give to us, that we would learn from the error of this crowd that our faith would not be so shallow and earthly as theirs. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of things are happening in John chapter 6. One of the things we're getting an explanation for here is what it is about a faith produced by demanding, expecting, needing miracles that is displeasing to Jesus. I've, I've mentioned this before, but at the end of chapter 2, we, we read that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in him when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to testify concerning man. And we scratch our head and go, I thought believing in his name was what we're supposed to be doing. And in fact, we know John wrote his gospel, a book of signs, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples. But these signs are written that you might believe. So there's a positive value, a good result that come come from seeing a miracle or a sign or reading about one in the text. But we also know from the end of chapter two, we know from when the nobleman's son was sick and Jesus said, unless you people see signs and miracles, you simply won't believe. There's also something negative that can come from that. John chapter six is gonna help explain that because this crowd that has followed Jesus across a sea originally began following him. If you look back at chapter two in verse two, why were they following him? A large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Here's a crowd coming because they saw signs. And we know that at the end of this chapter, this crowd's going home for the most part. So we're going to start to see part of what we can learn here is what is it about faith that Jesus doesn't trust? What is it about miracle demanding faith that is displeasing to God and unhelpful. The other thing we're going to see in this is what the proper object is. This Jesus and his teaching will function as a foil or as the, 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 the unbelief or the shallow belief or whatever you want to call it. The, the insufficient faith of this crowd is in contrast to what Jesus directs them to. So we've got the contrast, not this, but this. So let's, let's begin by working through this with the crowd's question. The crowd's question. Rabbi, when did you come here? Now to set the, the place, Jesus fed them on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and now we've all crossed, Jesus, the disciples, and some subset of the crowd have crossed over to Capernaum. And if you look at verse 61, sorry, 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So it's possible this dialogue took place while he was moving, but far more likely he's in the synagogue, he's in Capernaum, the entire discourse takes place there, so you're blank. Where is this? Jesus was teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Some, some commentators have suggested he might have been walking and talking. It, it's possible, but it seems far more likely to me, even fitting with the title rabbi. He's, he's in a Torah school, he's teaching. That's where, this, that's where the action takes place, in Capernaum. And their question is fundamentally asking when and how did he get there? Um, John's told us that they were slightly perplexed. They know there is only one boat. They know the disciples got in it and that Jesus didn't get in it. And yet here he is. 
And so they're expressing some amount of confusion, some amount of, how did you get over here, Jesus? When did you get here? How, how did this happen? And as much as this text reveals what is displeasing and insufficient about this crowd and their faith, let's give them some credit. These are people who went out into the wilderness and from the other gospels we know spent all day listening to Jesus teach. I mean, just right there, how many of you would be willing to go outside in the hot Iowa sun, which I think has nothing on Israel and the wilderness, go out and sit and listen and pay attention to the teaching of a man. And then the next morning, after presumably sleeping in the wilderness, following him across a lake to go see him again. These people, to some degree, have, have got some skin in the game. They've, they've done some work. They've, they've exercised energy. They're not sitting back clicking on YouTube links. They're actually working. I mean, let's give them some credit. When the text says they're seeking Jesus in verse 24, they are. They're seeking him. What's remarkable is Jesus' response to them. In, in the 90s, there was a thing called the seeker-sensitive movement, and the seeker-sensitive movement in churches insisted that what churches need to do is cater themselves to the desires, the inclinations of those who are seeking God. And I think John 6 helps give a check to that. Not that we want to put unnecessary roadblocks in people's way. Not that we want to make things more difficult. But we know what these people want is another sign. What these people want is another miracle. And we, the reader, know there's been one, right? How did Jesus get across a stormy sea? He walked on water. And they're asking him, how'd you get over here? If Jesus' goal was, well, I want to give them what they want, and what they want isn't fundamentally wicked. He's done miracles for them. He could say, well, let me tell you how I got across here. I walked on water. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't give them what they want. In fact, he gives them a mild rebuke. He gives them a mild rebuke. So we go from the crowd's question, and they're asking when and how did they get there, to Jesus' correction, point two, Jesus' correction. This is one of four times in this discourse Jesus says truly, truly. They're markers. These are solemn statements. These are, these are truths you can take to the bank, as you will. And Jesus truly, truly here is a mild correction. They come to him, they greet him with a respectful title, Rabbi, which is somewhat backed off from this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world, but still respectful. They've already backed off a little bit. These people who came out and spent a day with Jesus, who were fed by him, who then followed him across a sea, this is, in fact, similar thematically to, to Jesus' encounter with another man who saw signs named Nicodemus, isn't it? There's a little thematic connection here. And so Jesus' response to this correction is this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus' correction. So what are they doing wrong? What's, what's he chiding? What, what's wrong in what they're doing? Well, simply put, they're seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. Isn't that interesting? You can come to Christ, you can seek Jesus for wrong reasons, insufficient reasons. And the issue here is not fundamentally the bad and the good, but the good and the best. Seeking food 
It's not a bad thing. If you didn't seek food from time to time, you would die. What Jesus is correcting is that's all they're seeking. That's their highest value. There's something greater they should be desiring that they are not seeking. So he says something remarkable. He says to them, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what does Jesus mean by saying you, you, not because you saw signs? The text in verse 14, look at 614. When the people saw the sign he had done, so John the narrator in scripture has said these people saw the sign. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you, you, you didn't see me because you saw signs because you ate your full of the bread? He's using seeing in a slightly different sense. And what he means is something like, they did not understand the sign's significance. Signs are meant to point to things. So you might pull up, you might be driving along and see a sign that's in an octagon and it's red and has the word stop written on it. But until you process that sign, put your foot on the brake and stop, you may have saw the sign, but you didn't see the sign, right? That's, I think, the sense in which Jesus is saying it. They, their eyes saw the miracle. They have not understood what it means, what it was meant to communicate, what it was meant to point to and reveal to them. And so all they saw was free food, and their desires were, let's get some more free food. And so they've come across the lake fundamentally to get more free food, which means then what they're seeking Jesus for at their highest level is more material blessings, more material blessings. And we've got to be careful here. The food was a blessing. Jesus was happy to give it the day before. And there was nothing wrong in their joyful reception of it. Blessings, material blessings, are not bad things in and of themselves. Jesus' rebuke is that that is the only reason they're seeking him. You, you may well be praying earnestly for some material blessings, a job, a healing from sickness. You may be praying for many number of things that could fall under the category of material blessings. Hopefully, that's not all you're praying for. Jesus, in fact, would teach his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So don't misunderstand this as though somehow being concerned about eating or drinking is, is wrong. Jesus' rebuke is the, the physical blessing that he gave to them freely, gladly, they didn't see anything above and beyond that. That's, that's the highest value they had. But make no mistake, if that's the reason you want Jesus only, we can plug in things like, I want a, I want a better marriage. I want, I want a better home life. I want meaning and significance in my life. I want a ethics and a worldview. I want a community of people that I can call my family. These are all material blessings that I am thankful for. If that is the only reason, the highest reason, why you would call yourself a follower of Christ, that is not good enough. That's Jesus' point. He's going to clarify what they should be seeking. So the rebuke is, don't merely seek Jesus for more material blessings, but see the significance of the sign he has worked. So now he tells us positively what to do. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. And even as Jesus' miracle picturing the manna in the wilderness, the gift of God by Moses, we're going to pick that up next time we study this, that manna 
rotted if you kept it. That, that manna would, would spoil, right? You remember in, uh, in Exodus 16, 20, they did not listen to Moses, so they left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. So even the very miracle bread that God gave Israel had intrinsically this notion. It was, it was temporary. It, was, it passed away. It perished. And the, and the simple principle is this. If your highest value, if what you worship, and you've heard me say this before, worship just comes from the old English worth-ship. If the thing that you think is most worth has the greatest value, your treasure, your God, is something of this life, it will perish, and so will you. First John is explicit on this point. This world is passing away, and its desires. And so if your highest value are the things of this world, if the things you're most concerned about are the goods of this life, understand they will all perish, all of them. And those who worship them and those who treasure them will perish as well. And so Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Food that endures to eternal life. Point B, they must work for the food that endures to eternal life. So the blanks here. Do not work for food that perishes earthly, but eternal Food that endures to eternal life. And the idea of the food that endures to eternal life is not food that somehow, you know, you can check on it in 500 years and it's still fresh. You know, somehow I think I've heard like Twinkies would survive an atomic holocaust. That's not the idea. It's food that gives eternal life. It's not a, a food with an ever fresh date, but rather a food that gives, transfers life. A food that doesn't just give energy for a day. I mean, we get this. You eat a meal. These people get this. They ate the meal yesterday, but it's the next day. Guess what? They're hungry again. The miraculous bread that Jesus fed the 5,000 with, the energy it provided waned. And here they are wanting more food. And Jesus is saying that that miracle, that sign is meant to point to a food source that gives life without end. And, and I think him bringing this topic up is meant to, to, to prick their conscience. They should be asking, what is, this, what is this miracle food? This is similar to the path he took with the woman at the well, right? They start talking about natural things, water, then Jesus introduces a water that will never make you thirst again. So there's a similar pattern here, which is to say Jesus is treating them fairly. He's, he's using the similar approach he did to the woman at the well. The difference is the woman in the well and the Samaritans, they're going to respond ultimately with faith. This crowd is not. But Jesus is starting with a natural thing and then shifting to a, to a spiritual thing. They should be saying, well, what is this bread that never perishes? What is this? But they don't, they don't pick up on that. They don't pick up on that. We'll get to that in a moment. Notice the, the next bit, which the Son of Man will give to you. Which the Son of Man will give to you. This is important because Jesus is saying, ultimately, work for a gift. And then that should leave a certain amount of, huh? How does that work? And we'll get to that. Work for a gift. Which is to say, Jesus is already insisting, or already suggesting, and I think he'll make clear shortly, that really, it's not a work that God requires. But to the degree that they are exercising effort, they've followed him, they've come to him, they've traveled across the sea to hear him, they're working, fair enough. So don't take all your energy, and don't take all of your plans, and all of your time, simply for material things. Because we will, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but we will dedicate much time and energy 
to get the material food that perishes? How many years do we go through school? You go on to college or training and apprenticeships. You think of them, the many thousands upon thousands of hours that we spend preparing for a vocation, a job, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. The point is, those things perish. Those jobs and the money they provide and the food that can be bought with that money and the housing perish. Okay, take some of that energy, take more of that energy and pursue things that are eternal. If all you're interested in are the things of this world, if all you're concerned with is, is eating and being clothed, are these not the things Jesus says elsewhere the Gentiles are concerned with? No, we should have our sights set on something higher, a food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So even though he's saying work, he's declaring this to be a gift. Oh, he's, they should be asking some questions. We're going to see the question they ask is actually missing the point, but Jesus has set this up wonderfully. Work for the food the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, he says, the Father has set his seal. For on him, God the Father has set his seal seal. Now we're back to another Christological claim. The notion of a seal is that a, an owner or a merchant would invest, would, would examine his goods and put his seal. This is genuine. This is approved. This is my proved work. You can also have the idea of being certified that God, here's what Carson quotes, the idea is that God has certified the son as his own agent authorizing him and him alone to be the one to bestow this food. We see a picture of this in Genesis 41 when, when Pharaoh exalts Joseph. What does he do? Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He took his signet ring, his seal, and he gave it to Joseph. What's the clear implication? I've authorized him to act on my behalf. He's wearing the king's signet ring. And so God putting his seal on Jesus through his miracles, we know this, they testified him through his own witness. This is back from John 5. God has testified that Jesus is the one who can give this bread. So Jesus says, look, you're coming at me for the wrong reasons. Your sights are too low. Don't, don't seek, don't work for bread that perishes. Work for bread that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, whom God has authorized to give to you. That's, that's what he says. That's what they should be asking along the lines. should be something along the lines of, what is this bread? How will you give it to us? What's the crowd's second question, though? Nope, they get hung up on a different word. They don't get hung up on the difference between enduring food and perishing food. They get hung up on the word work. Oh, that's what they're interested in. What must we do to be doing the works of God? So your first blank here is ignorance. They have misunderstood Jesus' correction. Jesus' correction, in essence, is not about two different types of work. Work A and work B. His, his correction is about two different objects of work. Working for A or working for B. Right? That's, that's plain in the text. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life. So Jesus would shift their focus of what they're pursuing, what they desire, what they want from earthly perishable things to eternal things, and they get hung up on the word work. They've missed the correction entirely. Not only that, but there's tremendous hubris in this question because it assumes something. It assumes that they think they can do what God requires. 
And this is more similarities with Nicodemus. Tell us what we need to be do, that the phrase the works of God, the works God requires. What must we do to do the work that God would require of us? And they think they can do it. They think in their own strength they're able to do that. This again can be part of the problem of people who see signs. Nicodemus needed the correction from Jesus. Truly, truly, you, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit. This crowd gets hung up on the word work. They misunderstand Jesus' correction. They don't ask about the bread that endures to eternal life. Rather, they want to know what they can do to do the work God requires of them. So Jesus then offers a clarification. Jesus offers a clarification. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So now there's no more metaphor. There's no food that perishes, food that endures. He strips away the, the word picture, tells them plainly, this is the work God requires, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here's your blank. Faith is the work God requires. Faith is the work God requires. Now, I think there is meant to be a planned words here. Um, faith, Paul will insist, is itself not a work. And Jesus even saying he's going to give the bread. When you work for something, we know from Romans 4, your paycheck isn't a gift. It's, it's due. No, this is a gift, a bread that the Son of Man will give. He gives to those who believe. And so Jesus' wordplay here is making it clear that the work is really faith. Faith is the work God requires. Uh, this, this would be one of the places I'd point to to show that Jesus himself teaches what, what I understand Paul to teach, which is justification by faith alone. Paul says in Romans 3, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who has justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here Jesus plainly tells this, this multitude, this peak group, this subset of the crowd, what God requires of you. And this holds true today. So what God requires of you and me, what God requires, the work he requires, you want to do the work that God requires, here it is, believe in the one whom he has sent. Believe in Jesus, in other words, and believe Jesus is who he says he is. This is tied up in a Christological claim, the one sent by God. You must believe that Jesus is the one sent by God, which is Jesus hammering the same point he did in chapter 5, remember? If you turn back to chapter 5, verse 36, his insistence to the Jews in Jerusalem was the Father had sent him. He says in verse 36 of chapter 5, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father have given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There, there it is plainly. And Jesus' insistence in chapter 5 is that he has come not on his own accord, but he's been sent by the Father to accomplish the Father's will. Here in chapter 6, what God requires is to believe in Jesus and believe in Jesus as the one sent by the Father. And if you will believe in Jesus as the one sent by the Father, if you will entrust yourself to him by faith, seeking not earthly blessings, but seeking 
the food that gives life. Jesus says he gives it. He's been authorized by the Father to give it. This is the best news. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to go do something. Just believe. And here in John's gospel, it's plain. It's plain. So how does the crowd respond to this good news? I mean, he's just made this simple. What do you have to do for work? Believe. It's not go bathe seven times in the Jordan. It's not go climb a hill, conduct a pilgrimage, perform a rite, or even get baptized. Believe in the one whom he has sent. First, chapter um, 6, verse 30 is tragic. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? This is the problem on display of a faith that's born out of and requires miracles. Just as yesterday's food provided strength for yesterday, well, yesterday's miracle provided for yesterday's faith. And they're saying to Jesus, you want me to believe today? Pony up with some more miracles. Just put that into practical terms for us. If a person who comes to Jesus only for the material blessings will keep needing and requiring them, they're functionally his or her God, right? And so what happens when the material blessings stop coming? What happens when the unexpected cancer, the lost job, the car crash, what happens then? Well, then, this isn't what I signed up for. You want me to keep believing God, keep blessing. These people who, who got to see the single greatest in scope miracle of Jesus' ministry, these people who ate bread that had never been baked, from grain that never sprouted, from fish that never swam, who got to hear the word of God teach them these people come across a sea and they ask what they have to do to do the works of God and they get told, it's a gift. Believe, I'll give you the bread. I'll give you the bread. You believe and I'll give you the bread. The Son of Man will give you the bread that gives life. Okay, what sign do you do? And notice the pickup on the word work here. The word work shows up one more time. What work do you perform? Two things quickly before we get to our time of communion. Um, their demand for a sign is insincere. Their demand for a sign is insincere. What work, what miracle do you do that we may believe in you? How do we know it's, because what they're saying is, look, you just do another miracle, we'll believe. How do we know that's not sincere? How do we know it's dishonest? They've just seen one. And they will see many more if they follow Jesus. In fact, turn to John 12. John 12, which closes out Jesus' public ministry, and it's clear John's writing a sort of concluding part of the section. Look at verse 36 and 37. Actually, go back to 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you a little while longer. While you have the light, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then here's John's closing sectional summary. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I thought, I thought just one more sign, and they believe. Just, what, just do one more sign, Jesus. That's all we ask, one more. Then we'll believe in you. No, they won't. No, they won't. And again, this is, this is the, the challenge to us that if we're tempted to say, look, if I could just have a conversation with God, if God could just do a work in my life, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. And even if you think all the way back to the institution of manna, that should teach us that signs and miracles don't create faith. How do I say that? The manna came in chapter 16 of Exodus because the people were grumbling. Remember? Exodus 16, 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. What was the initial context of the feeding of the nation of Israel in the wilderness, they're grumbling. They've just walked through, on dry ground, a sea. They saw a spectacular miracle. And did they say, surely the God who's led us out of Egypt, surely the God who's freed us from slavery, surely the God who parted the waters will provide for us. We're hungry. What do you have for us? We, we are confident you're going to take care of us. <sighs> wish I was dead. Would that we had died in Egypt where we had food. <sighs> they'd, they'd seen that miracle. So then God gives them food. What are they doing in chapter 17, the very next chapter? Did they say, okay, okay, we, we, got, the, we got the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. We got the miracle of the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. We've got the miracle of food. We're good now. We'll believe. We'll be content. Chapter 17, 3. The people thirsted for water and cried out, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So even as we consider the very miracle that Jesus feeding pictures, they link to it. They, they made the link. Moses fed the people of Israel in the wilderness with miracle, miraculous bread. And this man is feeding us with miraculous bread. The very story of the Exodus makes it clear. Mighty works of God and miracles do not purify hearts. Seeing signs and wonders doesn't make people great, thankful. It doesn't create gratitude. The people of Israel constantly, like spoiled children, whine and complain and grumble, 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 grumble. And look ahead in chapter 6, the verse back in John Chapter 6, verse 41, what do these Jews do? <laughs> the Jews grumbled. I mean, we're just, we're just recreating the entire Exodus scene here in chapter 6 as they grumble. So they're not sincere when they say, do, do one more sign. Give us what sign are you going to do that we might believe? But notice it also, and, and more offensively to my mind, they are trying to put the onus on Jesus. They are insisting that Jesus keep working for their faith. So they're the ones who got hung up on the word work. Jesus, I believe, was hoping to get them to ask questions about this life-sustaining, eternal food. Remember, he said not this food, but that food. They get hung up on the word work. 
He said work. So what do we have to do to do the works of God? Here's the work of God. Believe. Okay, what sign, what work do you do? You want us to do the work of believing Jesus, then you start working for us. You start working for us, and then we'll do the work of faith. That's what they're saying. They're just putting the onus right back on him. And this, again, I think helps explain why Jesus doesn't tell them how he got across the Sea of Galilee. These people want signs and miracles. He could have told them. He could say, well, I, I know you guys are really excited about miracles. Let me tell you. The problem is, even if he did that, and even if they believed him, that might satisfy them for one more day. When you come to Jesus for material blessings only, you're going to keep wanting and needing them, and you're going to keep requiring them. This crowd has the audacity to demand that Jesus do works for them after they've seen mighty works. But the key to get from this is this crowd is not like unlike us. If you're reading Exodus and you think of, man, those Israelites are knuckleheads and you don't make the next step, and I'm a knucklehead too. You're not reading it right. What Israel did in the wilderness, what this crowd does in Capernaum, is precisely the type of thing you and I do, or prone to do. When we want something, it's desperate. We're crying out, God, give me, give me. And then we get it. And then we move on to the next thing we want. Our parts are prone to wander. What sign do you do? They insist that Jesus keep working for them. That's not what faith looks like. And so part of how we correct that is, is seeking food that endures to eternal life. I've stopped here because this question, they're going to go on from asking for a sign to actually have a suggestion. They're so, up, they're so bold. They're so bold as to actually give Jesus a suggestion in case he doesn't have any good ideas. They got one for him. No, no look at this. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, hint, hint. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That bread thing you did yesterday, Jesus, that will do. That'll do nicely. They know what they want. This is further clarifying and proving Jesus knows what he's saying. He knows what's in man. You didn't come because you saw signs. You came because you ate your fill of bread and you want to eat your fill of bread again. And that question and suggestion on their part sets up Jesus' second truly, truly I say to you, which we'll pick up with next time. But here I just want you to consider that it is not a bad thing to want material blessings. The, the, the lesson here is not some sort of platonic, gnostic, material, bad, spirit, good, but rather spiritual, eternal things, best. Spiritual things, best. Set your sights higher than a material and earthly savior. Set your sights to a savior from sin who gives eternal life and gives it freely, gives it gladly. The Son of Man will give you this food and all God requires of you is that you believe in him that he sent. It's a free gift. And these people who've done work so far, they've, they've come out to visit him. I, this is tragic. They, think of the effort of walking out to the wilderness to find where he was in the desolate place and they stayed there all day in the 
Mediterranean sun and they likely slept on the ground and they got up and they got in boats and they crossed a sea. These people have worked to find and seek Jesus. And then they say, what further work do we have to do? And he says, believe. And they say, what work do you do that we might believe? (sighs) Tragic. Tragic. So the solution for us, the lesson to learn, is it's the good news that God is offering this free gift. The Son of Man gives to those who believe in him as the one God has sent to those who want more from him than material blessings, who are looking for eternal life. And that's another theme that's been running throughout the entire gospel of John, that, that God is offering. His son came not to deliver from Rome, but from sin, not to provide a temporal and earthly salvation, but an eternal and spiritual one. And the good news is, if that's what you want, he freely gives Let's close in a word of prayer as we prepare for a time of communion. Lord God, guard us from worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Guard us from loving your gifts more than the giver. Protect us from that idolatry. Help us, give us, gift us with a desire and a concern for eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with you, a bread that endures. Let us seek that first. And we know that you said that if we seek first your kingdom, all these other things will be given unto us. Help us to believe and trust you for that. Let us rejoice in our Savior and in the gift that he gives. In Jesus' name. Amen.